We are in a series of lessons, real answers to the big questions. And counting down the top ten questions that you yourselves submitted, today we come to the fourth most asked question. Once saved, am I eternally secure? You ask that in a variety of ways. Is there anything a Christian can do to lose his or her salvation? Can someone sin so much that they fall out of God's grace and not be saved any longer? What about Judas Iscariot? Was he predestined to betray Jesus? Did he have no choice? What is the unpardonable sin? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't the Bible teach that once we are saved, we are always saved? Is it true that a believer who willfully and defiantly rejects Jesus was never really a true believer in the first place? And on and on your questions went. Interesting questions. And there's no possible way that we could answer each and one of, one of these individually, so I've chosen to group them under the more basic question, once saved, am I eternally secure? Now before we even attempt to answer this question, we must understand one very important thing. What we're discussing this morning is a matter of opinion. We may have differing views on eternal security and still be saved. Yes, there are certain matters that are essential and non-negotiable, such as salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But there are other matters that are non-essential and negotiable, matters where we may disagree without, I hope, being disagreeable, matters of opinion over which we should never, ever cause division, like styles of worship. Or in time theories, as a couple of examples. And this matter, eternal security, is non-essential and negotiable. It's a matter of opinion. And there are great Christians who would answer this question, once saved, am I eternally secure, on both sides? Yes and no. And so today, I want to do my best to simply give you my understanding of eternal security. I want to answer this question according to what I understand the Bible teaches. And whether or not you agree with me on this issue, please understand that we can be in heaven together. <laughs> okay? So let's make a deal. For my part, I'll try my hardest to present both sides objectively. I think I can do that because, as you'll soon find out, I don't really agree with either position completely. And on your part, I would simply ask for you to have a teachable spirit. Let's attempt to answer this question with open eyes, ears, minds, and hearts today. So in that light, let's pause right now and pray. Father God, we... Uh, need to hear from you this morning. My opinion, man's opinion on whichever side or sides of this issue we may land doesn't really matter. What matters is truth. And so I pray that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear our minds to understand, and our hearts 
to receive that truth from Your Word today. Teach us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Once saved, am I eternally secure? Let's begin to answer this important question by looking at the probable source. The probable source. The question that's before us this morning is centered upon what theologians often call the doctrine of eternal security. In layman's terms, once saved, always saved. In its essence, this popular doctrine holds that once a person becomes saved, there is no possible way whatsoever that he or she could ever be lost again. Now, what's the probable source or origin of this specific doctrine? Many in the church today may be surprised to learn that up until the 16th century, this doctrine was not even taught in the church. Church history tells us that people came to hold this position of eternal security as a reaction to the Roman Catholic Church's practice of the sale of indulgences. In the 1500s, due largely to Bishop Dominic John Tetzel, the Roman Catholic Church actually sold what was called indulgences. In essence, you could earn your salvation by your giving to the church. You could buy off your sin, if you will. Here's how it worked. If you were being tempted and you thought that you could probably not or maybe you just didn't want to defeat that temptation, you could actually purchase from the church an indulgence that would forgive you of the sin before you even committed it. What a deal. (laughs) In fact, few people know that actually St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome was built off of the sale of indulgences. That's how much money the Roman Catholic Church made. Now this practice aroused the spiritual indignation of a man named Martin Luther. He saw this, and rightly so, as a corruption of the Bible. And on October the 31st, 1517, he nailed his 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, proclaiming to the Roman Catholic Church just how wrong they were. That, of course, started what we call the Protestant Reformation. Now, a contemporary of Luther was a man named John Calvin. Calvin took Luther's theses and he enlarged upon them. Calvin basically said, not only are we saved by faith, not being able to purchase or earn or buy off by money or penance, but that those who are saved are chosen by God and they really have no choice in the matter. In its basic form, Calvinism says that God chooses some people to be saved and some people to be damned. Not only is there no way to earn your salvation, but you don't even choose your salvation. Rather, you are chosen. You have no free will in the matter. Theologians call this, in its purest form, predestination. Now, Calvinism is built on five basic tenets, forming the acronym TULIP, as you notice there in your notes, T-U-L-I-P. Look at it with me real quick. T stands for total depravity, 
All of us are not only born with the nature or tendency to sin, but with the guilt of sin. We inherit the sin of all those who were born before us. We are totally depraved and guilty for sin from the moment we're born. The U stands for unconditional election. God does not base His election on anything that man can or will do. There is no human choice involved. He chooses who He wills as He wills. The L stands for limited atonement. Jesus, by the way, did not die for everyone. Only for the elect, according to Calvinism. Those who were already chosen by God. I stands for irresistible grace. Whoever God elects or chooses cannot resist God's grace. Those uh, those predestined for salvation are compelled, really beyond their choice, to come to Christ. And the P stands for perseverance of the saints, or eternal security, a logical offshoot of predestination. If you are one of the elect, that is, God elected you without really your choice, then how could you ever fall from His grace and lose your salvation? Since God is the one who chose you, you are in no matter what you yourself do. So you see where this doctrine of eternal security came from. It is a reaction and an attempt to counter the heresy of the Roman Catholic Church. Those indulgences that taught that salvation could be purchased, that you could buy off your sin, if you will. Calvin went to the other extreme and taught that not only can you not earn your salvation, you can't even choose it, not to mention lose it. And so that is then the probable source. Now when the pendulum swung to this extreme, there were others who reacted to Calvin's teaching and they swung the pendulum the other direction. Basically, they disagreed with the doctrine of the elect predestination and the resulting belief in eternal security. And in the 600 years since that time, you have to understand, there have been good, solid Christian scholars on these two sides who have divided and argued over this issue rather heatedly at times, case in point, denominations. Which brings us to our second main point this morning, and that's the polarized sides. The polarized sides. As I said, there are predominantly two opposing views on this issue of eternal security. Two camps, if you will, within the church today. One that would answer this question, once saved, are we eternally secure? With a resounding yes. And one that would answer with a resounding no. And in fairness to each, let's look at both of them in light of what the Bible teaches. Let's begin with what I'll call unconditional security. Unconditional security. Again, it's often referred to as Calvinism or eternal security. This camp has polarized to the once saved, always saved extreme. The position here is that there's nothing a person could ever possibly do once they have been saved to lose his or her salvation. And there are a number of New Testament scriptures that those on this side of the issue would use to justify their belief. For instance, in John 10, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 
Romans 8, verses 33 through 39. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul writes in Ephesians, When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance with whom you were sealed until the day of redemption. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. Jesus lives forever, therefore He is able to save forever those who come to God through Him. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. He's given us a new birth into a living hope and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And 1 John 5, verses 11 through 13. In fact, let's read these verses out loud together. Would you read them with me? God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Great verses. And those are just a few of the many Bible verses used to support the position of unconditional, eternal security. Now let me point out that there are a couple of obvious problems with Calvinism, with this view of once saved, always saved. The first one is backsliding. What we often call backsliding. What about the person who backslides and never seems to bounce back. (laughs) What if having once professed faith in Jesus, they fall away and they never ever again in their lifetime come back to Christ? Often the answer given by those who hold to unconditional security is that this person was never really truly saved in the first place. In other words, if they were truly saved, then they would not stay in that backslidden state. Hmm. Think this through with me for a minute. How secure is that? Let's say that both you and I come to Christ on the same day in the same way. We both genuinely repent and by faith we receive the salvation that God offers through Jesus' death for us on the cross. Are we both saved? Yes. But let's say that 20 years later, I backslide. I drop out of church, I walk away from my relationship with Christ, I fall into sinful habits and addictions, and basically I become a horrible, vile, sinful person. My lifestyle, my character, my behavior is openly in rebellious disobedience to God. So someone says, well, Mark was never really saved in the first place. Really? Wait a minute. You came to Christ the same day and in the same way 
that I did. So how can you tell whether or not you are really saved? Either. And the Calvinist would answer, well, by your fruit. Okay, so now we're back to what we do shows that we are saved. Then when we sin, are we no longer saved? You see the confusion that that causes? Now another problem with unconditional security is free will. Free will. How do we hold to the once saved, always saved position and deal with the free will of each individual? If we're going to embrace Calvinism wholeheartedly, we must ultimately believe in predestination, that we are elected and chosen by God apart from our will. And as such, we cannot lose something that we didn't choose to begin with. Eternal unconditional security is the logical outcome, you see, of Calvin's tulip doctrine. And yet the Bible speaks again and again about the free will of humankind. That we have a choice to accept or to reject God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. That we can decide to say yes or no to God's free gift of salvation. There are many scripture verses that I could quote here, but really only one is needed, and that's Jesus' great invitation in Revelation 22, verse 17. In fact, let's read it out loud together. Would you read it with me? Come, say the Spirit and the Bride. Whoever hears, echo, come. Is anyone thirsty? Come. All who will, come and drink. Drink freely of the water of life. Don't miss those words. All who will. NIV translates it, anyone who wishes. Not anyone who's elected, but anyone who wishes. Jesus died for everyone, and anyone who wishes may, according to this, come and drink of the free gift of eternal life. Free will. Enough said. So the first view on this issue of eternal security is unconditional security. Once saved, always saved. There's nothing a person could ever possibly do once they've been saved to lose their salvation. The other extreme, the other side of this whole debate is often called conditional security. Conditional security. It's often called Arminianism after Jacobus Arminian, a Dutch theologian, who was, by the way, a contemporary with Luther and with Calvin. He is largely responsible for reacting to Calvin's tulip doctrine and swinging the pendulum back the other way. This camp has polarized on the falling from grace extreme. The position here is that a person can, in fact, lose or forfeit his or her salvation. In the Bible, words to describe that are the words reprobation or apostasy. And there are a number of New Testament scriptures that those on this side of the issue would use to justify their belief. For instance, Jesus himself warned in Luke 9 verse 62, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 26 and 27, I run the race with determination for fear that when I have preached to others, I should myself be disqualified. That's the Apostle Paul. Galatians 5, verse 4, You've been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away 
from grace. 1 Timothy 1, verse 19. Cling tightly to your faith in Christ. For some people have disobeyed their consciences and have deliberately done what they knew was wrong. It isn't surprising that soon they lost their faith in Christ after defying God like that. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith. Let's read 2 Peter 2. Verses 20 and 21 out loud together. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Hmm. Those are just a few of the many Bible verses used to support this position of conditional Security. Now let me point out that there's at least one very obvious problem with Arminianism, with this view of reprobation or apostasy, and that has to do with what we sang about this morning, grace. Where's God's grace in this position? Using the terms we just read in these scriptures a moment ago, what does it mean to look back or to be disqualified or to fall away or to lose their faith or to abandon the faith or to turn their backs? What is that? Are we talking about just a single sin here? Or maybe five sins? Or how about ten? Where's the line, you see? If we sin and then we die without confessing that sin and repenting of that sin, does that mean then that we are lost? Doesn't God's grace cover us in that situation because we're in Christ? Are we saved one minute and then lost the very next? I've heard this called hokey pokey Theology. You put salvation in, you put salvation out, you put salvation in, and you shake it all. I mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> Always afraid that you have missed a sin and therefore you might lose your salvation. By the way, did you know that this is the primary reason for last rites by the Roman Catholic Church? Just in case a person missed confessing a sin. And unfortunately, that view is held not just by Catholics, but by believers in the church today who are always, it seems, uncertain about their salvation. Instead of eternal security, I call it eternal jeopardy. (laughs) There's no assurance. And folks, you do understand that that view of grace is not at all what the Bible teaches. And so there are predominantly two opposing views on the issue of eternal security. Two camps, if you will, within the church today. Calvinism and Arminianism. Unconditional security and conditional security. And as you probably already guessed, although there is truth in both positions, I am not personally a proponent of either. I think an honest look at the Bible actually offers the possible solution. And we finally come to the two passages in the book of Hebrews that I asked you to turn to earlier. You thought I forgot, didn't you? Let's look at them right now. Hebrews chapter 6. We'll pick it up with verse 4. Follow along in your Bible. 
it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. Whoops, time out. Hang on. Who's he talking to here? He is talking to Christians. Make that abundantly clear. I mean, who did he describe? They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming. He's talking to born-again believers right here. And he says, it is impossible for those, down to verse 6, who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Man, that ought to make you stop and think. To their loss, their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Now, while you're chewing on that, turn over to chapter 10, okay? Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to look at verses 26 through 29. But before we get to 26, I want you to understand in the context here, again, who he's talking to. Back in verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters. So who's he talking to? Christians. Okay, I want to make sure you understand that. They're born-again believers. He's talking to people in the church. Brothers and sisters, he says in verse 26, If we, brothers and sisters, Christians deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth. No sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely... Do you think someone deserves to be punished who has, one, trampled the Son of God underfoot, two, who has treated as unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them? You see, they were sanctified. Don't miss that. And three, who has insulted the Spirit of grace, the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, the writer of Hebrews is addressing Christians here, born-again believers. And his purpose in writing is to warn Christ's followers in the church about the possibility and the consequences of falling away. Notice again how he describes this apostate condition, chapter 6, verse 6. It's somebody who is crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Isn't that interesting? That's pretty strong words there. Literally spitting in the face of Jesus and the cross and bringing public humiliation to the Lord that this person once named. Chapter 10, verse 26. is talking about somebody who deliberately keeps on sinning. Now, notice it doesn't say deliberately sinning. <laughs> I want to clarify that because all of us deliberately sin, do we not? There are times that we choose to sin, knowingly and intentionally. It's not talking about that. It's talking about somebody who keeps on 
sinning. It is The picture here is of habitual, willful, defiant sin. Somebody who doesn't repent. Somebody who just lives in a life of sin and doesn't give a rip. And then verse 29, of course, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot. That's what I think of you, Jesus. Who is treated as unholy. The blood of the covenant just spits in the face of what Jesus did on the cross. And who has insulted the spirit of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You've turned your back on the Holy Spirit. See, the writer of Hebrews is clearly describing someone who's intentionally and defiantly rejected God. Someone who has deliberately and knowingly scorned and ridiculed Jesus and His work of salvation on the cross. Someone who has absolutely and totally turned his or her back on God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Someone, the writer of Hebrews says, for whom it is now impossible for them to be brought back to repentance. Now I need to clarify here that I do not believe that you can lose your salvation like you lose your keys. Okay? Nor do I believe that your salvation can be taken away from you by anyone or anything. But I do believe that we can willfully and deliberately throw our salvation back in God's face. As we accept salvation by our free will, so we can reject salvation by our free will. And the key in all of this, please understand, is repentance. Repentance. Where there is repentance, there is the assurance of forgiveness and salvation. Without repentance, the writer Hebrews says, there's only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire. Doesn't get too much clearer than that. Yes, this is what's often called the unpardonable sin or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Simply put, there is no repentance. Understand me on this, hear me. Nor is there any desire for repentance. This person, you see, has crossed the line, the point of no return. He or she is no longer willing or able to respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction of sin in his or her life. In fact, they don't even know that they are there, nor do they care. They really don't. And for them, there's no sacrifice for sins left. Why? Because they have deliberately and defiantly turned their back on the one and only way to salvation, Jesus and the cross. And folks, there's no plan B. (laughs) Again, they've trampled the Son of God underfoot crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace by their willful disregard and their rebellious, defiant, 
disobedience. Now again, the key in all of this, please understand, is repentance. In fact, where there is repentance, there is assurance. (laughs) The very fact, by the way, that you asked these questions... (laughs) is an indication of where your heart is. (laughs) You have a repentant attitude. The fact that you are concerned is an indication of where you are spiritually. And in that, you have blessed assurance. So I want to propose that this then is the possible solution. This then is the answer to today's question. Once saved, am I eternally secure? And believe me, there is so much more that could and should be shared, but we are out of time this morning. So let me just wrap up this lesson with a few key statements for your consideration. We don't know when the point of no return and no repentance is passed. You do understand that, right? We don't know that. Only God does. Because God knows the hearts. So when you're looking at somebody and you're thinking, man, they're past hope. No, they're not. That's not for you to judge. Only God can judge that. And if you are concerned whether you are there or not, you're not. (laughs) Because of your concern. You understand that, right? It shows your heart of repentance. And let me say that sinning deliberately and knowingly is dangerous. Don't even go there. Why would you play with fire? If you play with fire, you're going to get burnt seems to me that some Christians, they cross that line of faith and they want to just stay there. <laughs> In fact, some just kind of want to straddle the line. You know what I'm talking about? They don't go in any further. They just kind of straddle. That, that's pretty dangerous, I would think. Why would you want to do that? Kind of like the parents who heard a thud in the middle of the night and their son cried out and they ran into their son's bedroom they found him on the floor. And he was getting himself up and crying. He said, I fell out of bed. And the dad looked at him and said, that's because you stayed too close to where you got in. (laughs) And that's exactly what many Christians do. They just stay too close to where they got in. Why would you do that? Why would you not go deeper? Why would you not go further? Why would you not want to mature as you know God more and more every day as you relentlessly pursue Him and your relationship with Him? So don't play with that. And if you think this could never happen to you, be careful. In fact, read 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12 out loud with me. Would you read it with me? So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Ah. And finally, I would just say as you're following Christ daily, enjoy the full assurance of your salvation. You can. You can be fully assured of your eternity as you follow Jesus. Real answers to the big questions. This morning we've attempted to answer the question, once saved, are we eternally secure? This matter, eternal security, is non-essential and negotiable. It's a matter of opinion. And there are great Christians who would answer this question, once saved, am I eternally secure on both sides? Yes and no. 
as I was researching this this last week, one of the websites I went to was a guy who basically said, if you don't believe in eternal security, you're not saved and you are lost and bound and damned to hell. So agree with me and get with it. That's what he said on his website. And I went, I am not going to go there. We are not going to go there, okay? Frankly, I'm not so sure the answer to this question is as simple as we would like it to be. And whether or not you may agree with me on this issue, please understand, we can still be in heaven together. Won't it be neat when we get up there together and you have to apologize to me because I was right? No, I'm just, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. (laughs) Please understand that. (laughs) Let's pray. Father God, this is a rather perplexing question. We don't want to go too far one direction and find ourselves with a position we can't defend, and nor do we want to go to the other direction and find ourselves with another position that's just the opposite that we can't defend either. Somehow I believe, Lord, that the truth lies somewhere in the middle. So once again, I pray this has been a teachable moment for us, that you have expanded our understanding of salvation, which is by grace through faith alone in Jesus. That's non-negotiable. Thank you, Lord, that your word teaches us and stretches us. I pray that it's done that today in this regard. In Jesus' name. Amen.